2: Welcome to the Shape Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your Blue Collar, do-it-yourself self-guided public land elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Welcome to the Oak Shade Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man, doing a solo cast today because we uh, we, we promised to go through September and I'm going to do that now. I had to kind of put it on the back burner and just think, reflect on how I can do better. And I don't know, I'm still kind of trying to get the right roadmap. But uh, I want to break down the season for you. I want to keep this relatively short. I'm gonna go through things pretty fast and uh, buckle up, take you through my September and kind of how uh, how we approached the year, leading up to it with uh, you know planning, applying, and trying to figure out where we had the best chance to draw a decent tag. Pick up tags over the counter, backfill hunts, things like that. So let's get to it. So, in uh, August, we finished up our antelope hunt in Idaho. It's kind of like a little over the counter public land elk, or sorry, antelope hunt that we do with my dad every year. And that was fun. We went down for a week and uh, it was, it's just kind of a crapshoot hunt, honestly. It's, we're hunting a very low density area and there's a lot of hunting pressure and these goats get moved around a ton. But was able to get a goat on the very last morning we were set to leave. I I uh, negotiated an extra couple hours of morning hunt and got one more stock in and just sealed the deal on a goat spot and stock. So that was cool and antelope meat is probably my favorite. So <clears throat> it was really nice to have the, the antelope meat in the freezer heading into elk season. So first tag up was in Wyoming. Their season is September 1st through the 30th. You can either have a limited quota tag or a general tag. There is no over-the-counter. Wyoming does a really good job of managing their elk. They're not like too stingy with their tags, but they're stingy enough to where there's some pretty good quality even in general units. And so it's just a good state. Uh, they have good elk density, and there's some great areas in there. I think it's no secret. But my hunt started September 1st, so I drove down August 30th, left Spokane, and it was probably a 14-hour drive. At least an hour of that was really bad roads, just trying to get to camp. I had made arrangements to meet up with Manny from Wyoming. He was going to be my, quote, resident guide. If you didn't know, Wyoming requires you to have a resident guide or a guide outfitter with you at all times if you're in any wilderness. You can camp, fish, hike in wildernesses legally in wyoming but the second you are hunting you have to have the resident guide deal not sure how long that's been into effect but i am quite certain that the wyoming guide outfitter association has something to do with that i think it is a ploy to ensure that they have uh, demand so they can be hired so you can hunt wyoming backcountry you know alaska has a similar rule And I get that rule because there's a lot of places, in fact, most places in Alaska, you have to fly in to hunt. And so Alaska requires a guide if you're hunting sheep, if you're hunting mountain goat, or any like grizzly bear, coastal brown bear. You can do moose or caribou, do DIY, black bear, but other than that. So Wyoming's got that rule. I don't like it. I can't change it. Um... I think it's absolutely ridiculous, but uh, I digress. The guy named Manny is a blue-collar electrician out of Jackson. He agreed to hunt with me, and so he went in and got the actual tag to be my resident guide. It's actually something that you go into Fishing Game and get printed off. So that was cool. We had made arrangements to meet up um, September 1st. Actually, August 31st. August 31st. Yeah, he dropped a pen. We decided to meet there. I arrived on the evening of the 30th and um, set up camp. The roads getting in there were terrible. I wish I actually could have parked and just drove a four-wheeler in to where I camped, but I didn't bring a four-wheeler. And the road was just terrible. We're talking like four-low crawling on a Jeep road that was like more like a side-by-side road and it was terrible. I was hoping not to get a flat back there. There's no cell phone service back there. There's uh, some wilderness in this unit, and there's some non-wilderness. So set up camp August 31st. Had quite a few basins picked out to go check and scout via Google Earth and all my online e-scouting. If you haven't listened to our podcast with Mark Livesey on digital e-scouting and how to use KLM files, Google Earth, tilts, and Top rut et cetera et cetera you you need to look that one up that really changed my game. I had an awesome online uh scout session and had a written plan went down there and executed august thirty first hiked into my first basin, got into a really awesome bull right away, called him into forty yards uh worked him for like over an hour, did some phone scope from about four hundred yards away, and then kind of got lucky and the cows. Got out of sight. So I moved in real tight on him and called him right in to 44 yards. Filmed him raking a tree and bugling right in my face. Phenomenal footage. It's on YouTube if you want to check it out. It's that uh, Wyoming series, episodes one, two, and three. So that was episode – actually, that's just the How to Find Elk in a New State video uh, posted pretty recently. So check it out. Also, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Show me some love. Uh, Get notified when we drop new videos. And yeah. We uh, we went in there and got that bull hot, fired up, and backed off after calling him in and got good footage, never burgered him, watched him take his cows and go bed, was pretty excited about that spot, but I could not hunt that without Manny. Made it back to camp. Manny wasn't there, and so I started getting concerned because the next day was opening day, and he was supposed to be there by then, so I st- went in and scouted the non-wilderness area, found a couple of really cool meadows. Uh, Not too far from camp, but, you know, a good three or four mile pull. And that evening watched some elk come into a meadow, actually three bulls, one shooter, and watched them feed into a meadow at 7.30 p.m. Just glassed them and watched and observed. They were sparring and feeding. It was really cool. Backed out. Manny wasn't at camp. So I woke up opening day in Wyoming, forced to hunt the non-wilderness made the trek into that meadow, saw those 3 bulls, they were still feeding, they really hadn't moved far. I watched them feed back into the timber and they took the same trail out that they were took in. Uh, bebopped over to another meadow, glassed a 340 bull with one cow go out a specific trail up onto a rim and go into a canyon. Noted that and then I hiked over into some country I wanted to check out. Really good sign. Enough sign to where I did like a, a cold call setup, so I got into kind of a little of opening, and it was sprinkled with really good timber. It was fairly flat with good topography off both sides for benches, and just did some soft mews, some raking, a couple of grunts, some heavy breathing, a few more estrus mews mixed in with some calf calls, uh, a squealy bugle chuckle, and then a really nasty herd bull. Uh, heard gathering bugle and grunts did that for 15 minutes and I called in a six by six he came in silent he popped up into the opening which surprised me he walked right into my shooting lane at 20 yards broadside and then he just continued to kind of make a half circle around me at one point I pulled back on him and I just couldn't get myself to shoot a bull that early in the hunt so I let down and filmed him some more and just was so stoked. I was in the shadows, which was important. The sun was out. It was really hot. It was about nine thirty, ten 10 in the morning. Again, the bull didn't make a sound. He snuck in. and So I kind of knew that the elk just weren't as hot in the non-wilderness area for whatever reason. They just, they're, they're, I hadn't seen it really, but one cow. There's just not a lot of competition. Uh, spent the rest of the day. Just covering as much ground as I could, looking for signs. Did a few more cold call setups, but really all the sign I was seeing was from the year past. Found one area had like 100 plus rubs from the year before. Must be where they eventually rut. And uh, just really learned the area. Try to figure out what the thermals and the prevailing was doing looking for sign. And then I made it back into that meadow for the evening. And I watched those same three bulls feed out into the meadow about 7.30 PM. One of the bulls was a nice six. He's about a 320 bull, really awesome frame, really wide, probably 40 inches wide, maybe more. Um, His tines were really far spread out. So just love those kind of elk. He had the potential to be a 350, 360, 370 bull if he had more length, but just a really handsome bull. He was hanging out with a 5x5 in a I broke off one by five, we'll say. And I watched them feed till dark and backed out. Made it to camp. No manny. So I knew I was going to have to hunt the non wilderness for September 2nd. Woke up that morning. Made the pull back to the meadow. Those three bulls were still where I left them the day before. And I decided to make a play on that 326 point. I got down in the meadow. Had decent wind. I skirted the herd of bulls got around and I was basically about 70 yards from the big six point And I had one last little opening. If I could make it through that, I'd be on a timber line with the wind in my face. And I felt like with the way he was feeding intently, I was going to be able to get in tight on him. So once I made it through that clearing, I looked back and the five by five totally picked me off and he, he had his head up and then the six point noticed that and they scurried off. So, uh, I, Hustled over to that other meadow and I saw that same 340 bull go out the same exact trail up on through the canyon and out. And he bugled once on his own. He had a cow and a five-point with him. And I really liked that bull. He was really handsome. He's probably the best bull I've seen at that point. I didn't push him. I went back up to that high point where I called in the six-point the day before. I literally went to the same little spruce tree in the shade. This time it was about 9 in the morning. I literally ran through the same sequence of calls. Started out with like some estrus, some calf calls, a light chuckle, a heavy herd bull. Just made it sound like an entire herd was there. And I looked to my left and there's a six point staring at me at the edge of the opening. Uh, My bow at this point was on the ground but I had an arrow knocked. So I slowly got to my knees and picked up my bow and the bulls just – Onto me, staring holes through me. So, sitting on my heel and one knee, I had to hold that position for about 15 minutes, maybe a little bit longer, until I was cramping. And I was like, man, I'm going to have to make a move. I knew I would shoot this bull if he'd give me an opportunity. So, I decided to pull my bow back and risk him uh, basically spooking. And I'd already ranged him at 36 yards. So, I knew the distance. When I pulled back, I was fully prepared to cow call when he whirled, but he didn't whirl. He stayed still, drooling, peeing all over himself. He was f- pretty fired up and he hadn't made a sound, came in silent. So, what I did was I was like, okay, I'm pull back. If he doesn't spook, I'm going to just face him. So, I pull back, turn my entire body, shift it, and I got a nice little frontal shot on him, but I don't want to take it. So, I'm just holding. 30 is on his throat. 40 is on a sternum where the light meets the dark and the middle between the two pins is just right in this sweet spot. There's like an eight inch sweet spot on a frontal shot. And I hunt solo. I call elk in solo. I've killed a handful of bulls frontal. So I've had a lot of success with it, but I have had one bad episode where I couldn't find a bull that I know I killed and I shot him frontal. I don't condone frontals. I don't want to even, I didn't even want to tell people that I shot the bull frontal. I don't want people taking frontals. It's kind of like a, a really dicey shot that can go wrong. If you miss at all what you need to shoot. But since I'm talking about it about eight inches up from the sternum is a big hole where there's no ribs blocking. And if your arrow goes through that, it's going to punch through the diaphragm and the lungs and it's just going to end up center math. Nothing's going to stop it. It's a good it's a deadly shot. The elk will die pretty fast. Um most bulls I've killed with frontal haven't gone more than forty yards. But uh again, not I want a broadside shot. So I'm aiming at this bull, my index is wrapped around the trigger, my elbows up high, and I haven't pulled yet, and I haven't consciously told myself to pull, but my bubble is dead in the middle, and I'm holding very steady. My heart rate's not high because I've had this bull in front of me now for over fifteen minutes. And I'm thinking he's going to whirl any second, but he doesn't. And next thing I know, the arrow is gone. I must have applied just a, just the right amount of pressure, and I got a complete surprise release. The arrow's gone, and I see it punch. I don't know if I could have walked up and put that arrow anywhere more perfect than where it went. And I saw blood shoot out as soon as it hit him at 36 yards, and he whirled and ran right off. And I – was immediately paranoid to be honest with you because i just don't like that shot angle unless i'm like under 10 yards and that's if i just don't think i can get a broadside shot but anyways um i walked right over there as soon as i shot and i stood where he had spun and i could just see blood sprayed everywhere like i must have just hit him perfect so rather than giving the elk the full hour and knowing better, I decided that I was just going to follow his tracks down the, uh, the way he went through this opening. And I noticed that I watched him run into the timber. So I was just going to follow it for about a hundred yards, uh, until the timber and just see what we got for blood. The wind was blowing from him to me. So I didn't think he would get my wind. That's why I decided to do that. So if I was hunting with anyone else, I would have made him wait, but I made the call. And so I did that. And I literally followed, like somebody had taken a five-gallon bucket. No, we'll say like a gallon of milk and just poured it, except for its blood. I literally just followed a river of blood to the timber 100 yards. And I was like, man, this elk is not going to make it. There's just, you cannot live with that much blood coming out. And out of all the elk I've killed, I've never seen one bleed this bad. So I got to the timber line and just glassed inside the timber. I didn't see him laying there, so I decided that I would wait there. And if the wind switched at all, I was going to back out. So I just stayed right there. The wind was steady and I waited for 30 minutes, knocked up and slipped into the timber, made it another 50 yards following a river of blood. And there he was laying down dead. Pretty cool. So it was 1030 when I found him and I uh, took some pictures, video, signed my tag like you have to in Wyoming, brought a ballpoint pen. FYI, if you didn't know that, Tagged them, broke them down solo. Um, I just run a line from the top of the head all the way to the tail. And then I peel it off and uh, start at the shoulder. Take a shoulder off, bone in, and then uh, take the the neck out, one half of the neck. Keep it all chunked together so you don't lose meat. Uh, backstrap, hindquarter, tenderloin. And when I take a hindquarter off, I have this little tarp that folds out from base camp. And that allows me to kind of get the meat off the out of the socket and drop right onto the tarp without getting dirt or hair on the meat, and then uh, get them all bagged up, get them hanging. Flip the elk. If the elk's a big-bodied elk, sometimes I got to pull the guts out to flip them solo. But didn't have to flip this guy with the uh, with the guts in, or flipped him with the guts in. Did the same thing, repeat, and then just popped the head off. Didn't save the cape. Didn't have. If I had um, a saw, I would have cut the skull plate off. But so I would take the head out, got the ivories out. Got the meat hanging, threw a shoulder in my pack, hiked straight up, not the way I came in, to a ridgetop, and then just kind of used my OnX and tracked all the way to a road. Dropped my pack off at the road, and then I hiked four miles to camp. Got Manny, told him I killed a bull. We hopped in my truck. We drove four miles, got out. We used a game cart that Manny had brought, and it was basically an old military gurney that he had really spruced up. It was very robust, and we we pulled that. Mm, just under a mile and then we went down into the timber probably a mile or so and did two trips leapfrogging the meat back out to the uh the gurney if you will and then we um basically tied some really cool knots manny did by the way i think all hunters should know how to tie knots and don't laugh at that like if you're a guy and you don't Really know very many knots. You might want to watch. There's some great YouTube videos where you can learn some pretty cool knots. I know that's where I learned how to tie knots was studying for firefighting. Uh, The department requires you to to be able to do a lot of different knots and to do them really well. And so I had to study that and practice that. And it's kind of muscle memory at this point. But uh, we tied we tied all that meat to the gurney and we'd push it 100 200 yards and we'd have to kind of adjust the load because it would rub the tires but we eventually got that meat out and we got back to camp really really late and so I took the morning off but I told Manny about that 340 bull that was literally going up this trail two days in a row and dropped a pen for him and was like get here by 6 a.m get the wind right and you might get a shot intercept this bull and um, it turns out Manny was just like literally two minutes too late the bull had already gone through that trail. When he got there, he got eyes on him, and he followed that bull and pushed him. And he followed that bull for miles and miles, and eventually that bull shut up. And so he made it back to camp pretty late in the afternoon. By that time, I had deboned all the meat, had it all in the chest freezer with a generator running, and I was feeling pretty good about the meat situation. And then we, um, we jammed out that afternoon cover some new country and then towards the evening got Manny set up on the meadow where the three bulls were coming out and <clears throat> sure enough 730 right on time the first bull pops out at 30 yards and he immediately pegs Manny Manny can't get a shot he kind of peels out of the way of Manny's shooting lane and then the next bull rolls in that one by five he pegs Manny Manny can't get a shot he takes off running I whistle at them both. I should have had a cow call in my mouth. Manny should have had a cow call in his mouth. I should have been next to Manny to coach him. I was backed off in 10 yards filming. And so I whistle at the bulls and stop them. Manny shoots without ranging, shoots high. They take off running. I whistle. They stop. They're perfectly broadside to me, but they're not broadside to Manny. He can't get a shot. And then they peaced out. So we kind of blew that big time. Like that was really three days of scouting and really dialing in these bulls that weren't rutting yet. But that was the way to kill them, and we didn't get it done. So the next day we went out together, and the elk just weren't hot, man. They It was all like slow play, cold calling stuff. And really we needed to go to the wilderness to get it done, and we didn't. So Manny and I decided that because this van – that's right, he he has a van that actually – It sounds like not cool, but it's the coolest thing ever. He's built it to where it's like a hunting van where he can sleep in it. It's got everything you need, all his gear, racks, everything. It's really custom. It's his hunting rig. But the tires were all super low from that crap road, and he was worried about not having cell phone service. So I followed him out to town. He made it out, and he decided that he was going to go back to work, save some vacation, and come back in a week when the rut kicked in, which I thought was a good plan. So I jammed home. And got the meat uh, processed the next few days, and spent uh, I think like the fourth evening of the fourth through the evening of the eighth with my family, just kind of you know doing family stuff. It was really awesome. We they, they all thought they wouldn't see me till October, so that was cool. And I started hunting on September eighth, and I didn't stop hunting Idaho till September twenty eighth. So those twenty days were hard harder than years before. So I went into Idaho knowing I already had a bull down and I had two tags for Idaho. I always do. And I usually kill pretty much the first branch antler bull I see. Uh, And that's usually because I haven't killed an elk yet, but this year was different. I didn't want to shoot a young bull. I wanted to shoot a mature bull. Um, And then really with that second tag, try to kill like a top end bull. Like, you know, I have a few herd bulls that are just, I know about from years and haven't killed yet. And so on the eighth in the evening, I went out to go check trail cameras. I usually put out anywhere between 20 and 30 cameras. And I had a certain area that I want to go to first. And I had seven cameras spread out pretty good just to kind of have inventory on who's who in the zoo. So made it over there. And honestly, four out of the seven cameras were stolen. These are cameras that are bolted with big long lags in a, bu- a bear box with a heavy duty lock. And all four had been sawzalled off the backside. And they all were in hard to get to places. I doubt anyone packs a sawzall with them. They're all had been out soaking for eight weeks. So most likely somebody found them and came back with the sawzall cordless and stole and these aren't like cheap cameras these are you know 200 300 stealth cam 4k 64 gig expensive memory card lithium batteries on really awesome areas and um it's just devastating honestly um i don't have really i don't have anything nice to say so i'm gonna move on but uh pretty bummed out about that uh got into some elk that evening just located some Came back there the next morning on the 9th. Uh, These elk were not hot, man. Like When I say I got in, I just got like a couple locations answered. That was it. And then in the morning, I didn't even call, which is pretty common for me. I don't call that much, believe it or not. I like the elk to talk on their own. And ideally, I like the herd bull to have a satellite or two to do all the pestering for me so I can sneak in. Um, The elk that I hunt... There in North Idaho are pretty hip to calls. And especially if you just introduce a new sounding bugle, they don't know who you are. They're real hesitant. A lot of times they'll sneak in and tell it really have a hot cow day. And then you can kind of take advantage. But this early on, I didn't want to call much. So I heard the best sounding bugle. I assumed that was the herd bull. He went off about three or four times over the course of two hours. So it was really tough to keep track of where they went. And eventually he stopped talking and I had to cut their sign and follow them, which is something that I think every hunter should probably know how to do is find fresh sign and follow the herd to their bedding area with the wind in their face. I got in tight on this herd and they were not talking. So I did a slow play setup, which is if you don't know a slow play, listen to the elk nut podcast that he he goes into great detail on what to do and I did a rendition of basically a bull talking to a cow only and so there's not a full-on bugle. Uh, there's some rasp into the bugle. It's a very short bugle. There's cow calls with some estrus pleas and whines and some things like that and so I got this bull calling cow sound going pretty good and basically took about an hour but I ended up bringing in the herd bull and the satellite bull, all under 20 yards. Both bulls I passed on. The first one was a 4 by 4 satellite, and I could he was my pet bull. I couldn't get him to leave. I got lots of good footage of him at 20 yards or less just for whatever reason. He never got my wind, and he just was hung out. And then the herd bull was a heavy 4 by 5 which was really shocking that he was running the show. And I knew there was bigger bulls in this area, so I passed on him. I didn't get great footage of him, but it was a 22-yard uphill shot and very steep, but I, I could have shot him. And I ended up coming back to this area the next several days, and that's when the weather came in. So from about the 10th through the 28th, I think I had a day and a half of dry conditions, whether it had rained and the rain was all over the brush, or it was lightly raining, or it was just downpour, or sprinkling on and off intermittent showers. It was wet. It was the wettest September I can ever remember. And I literally never heard a bugle when it was raining, which was brutal. The other thing was we had a full moon and I'm not a full moon guy I could give a crap less when the full moon's out, but it was noticeable to where the elk the week prior were still transitioning. They were already bedded miles away from their feed area and at first light and not very talkative and that full moon was on the 14th so really a few days leading up to it and a few days afterwards were very quiet wet conditions and I'm the kind of guy that will hunt all day regardless of the weather I probably started a fire a warming fire once or twice a day every day from the 10th through the 20th it was just that wet and terrible and it was really brutal. Um, I don't know what to say. Like, a couple things going into this hunt that was working against us was one: the tags were sold out. We're hunting in an area that's very popular. There was a lot of guys, and there was places where access has been limited. Where somebody had come in and cut out trails, trails that I like to leave kind of brushy and nasty. Where somebody came in with a chainsaw and made it to where a dirt bike only could get through there, and now a freaking four door razor side by side or ranger could make it through there easily so access was increased and then we had logging operations which we always do but these ones were way in the backcountry where gates were open and left open seven days a week so there was people driving trucks in places that i've never seen trucks and so it was just a lot of people A lot of bugles getting thrown out, mixed in with the full moon and really wet, rainy conditions. It was like the perfect storm for elk to just be on lockdown and just do their rutting at night. So between the 10th and the 20th, I probably passed on maybe six or seven other little rag bulls that I, and all of them were, not one came in bugling. All of them were elk that would come in if I had probably not been as patient I wouldn't have seen them it took them a little longer and they were all sneaking in and you had to have your head on a swivel not my cup of tea but that's kind of all I had experienced up to the through the 20th including Wyoming was just very little actual bugling picking fights with bulls that's my style that wasn't in style so once the twenty twenty-first rolled around I knew I mean I knew these elk were gonna have some hot cow days where To me, a hot cow day is where every bull in the drainage is bugling their head off at least till ten in the morning. Cows are getting pushed around, getting chased, and there's elk fighting, and it's rutting, and it's awesome. It's the magical days. Those are the days that you got to kill. And uh, I had a photographer coming up to hunt to hunt with me, and he was going to be just taking images. He wasn't filming for video, just straight stills. He wasn't packing a bow. Uh, We made arrangements for him to bring his Rokon because I hunt off a dirt bike a lot of times. And I told him to bring backcountry gear for camping out, which I do a lot. And he was a trooper. Uh, Nick Higman, photography, look him up. Dude was a hunter himself. And he's a professional photographer. That's his actual day job. But he hasn't really gotten to the outdoor industry. So fortunately for me, he was like trying to get his foot in the door and – convinced me to come up. And I, I'm telling you, man, I was nervous about him. But within a couple hours, I knew he was the real deal. I'll tell you about the 20th or the 28th. Let me give you a couple side stories. Other hunters. Um, so we had the trail camera stolen. I'm not new to that. I've actually had, I think I've had more cameras stolen than I have cameras left. So I'm no longer buying any camera more than $40. And I'm not putting big memory cards in them anymore. And I'm going to continue to put them way up in trees, pointing down, and that's that's all you can do. And if you if you're a guy who steals trail cameras, man, you're just no good to me. I don't know what you're thinking. Uh, maybe you're insecure that another guy's going to hunt the same elk as you. Um, I actually i I don't even want to speculate as to why you would steal someone's possessions. That we haven't. I don't know. Hunters have enough things stacked up against us. The last thing we need to do is fight. Amongst each other. It's just hard for me to comprehend theft of a trail camera. And I really like trail cameras just because it's fun to have inventory and see and get to really know these elk that I hunt year in and year out in this spot in Idaho. It's just, it's really fun to almost be a biologist and see, you know, who made it, who's the up and comer, how many cows, what's the bull to cow ratio ish, predators, what's the bear density, wolf density. Cat density, hunting pressure, things like that. So, um, but the the first crappy hunting story is Bob from Post Falls. I'm not going to say your last name, but I'm going to tell on you, man. Like, shame on you, in my opinion. Uh, so, Nick's first day out with me. All this happened on the 21st. We drove my truck in his truck and trailered our bikes up an old logging road about five miles and the road starts to get crappy so we pulled over unloaded our bikes got our gear we're just getting ready bikes are running and we see a truck coming up the road and i'm like nick we need to go we don't want to be stuck for five more miles behind a slow truck he's like all right i'm like try all right man just keep up stay on my butt and let's roll and i take off i get to the end of the road where this trailhead starts and there's no nick and i'm like crap I wait five minutes and he finally shows up and I'm like, is everything all right? And he's like, well, this guy in that truck kind of like pulled me over. And I was, I was like, yeah, he's like, yeah, he wanted to know where we were going today. And I was like, okay, well, whatever. And he's like, well, I told him, I literally don't know where we're going. This is my first time up here. And I was like, all right, well, fair enough. That's the truth. And so we start going up this nasty single track trail. And this is a trail that's designated for hiking, horses, single track dirt bikes, mountain bikes. Four wheelers are a no go. You couldn't get a four wheeler up this trail if you wanted, anyways. It's ruddy. It's covered in brush. It's got several rock step up ledges, uh, loose rock ruts. It could be. I mean, it's one of these trails where I don't clear it out on purpose because I don't want it to be convenient. And it's about a four mile ride of single track to the top. And then you go down the backside another four miles. So I get to the top, I shut the bike off. I look back and I'm waiting for Nick. And I finally see his headlight coming up the trail. I'm like, all right, he's good. And he's on a Rocon, which is like a two wheel drive dirt bike. Those things are sweet by the way. Um, and it's a bumpy ride, but he's doing it, man. He's there. He's, he's with me. And So I go down the backside and all of a sudden his headlight is right on my ass. And I'm like, dude, Nick, chill out. You're going to get us killed. So I put it in second gear and kind of just go a lot faster just to give some room between me and him because I just was thinking he was kind of becoming reckless. And he's on my butt the whole way. And I'm just, all right. So finally we get to where the trail peters out and that's kind of where we start hunting. So I cut the bike, pull over. And Nick pulls up right behind me. And then this blue dirt bike pulls up right behind Nick. And I was just kind of like, what is going on? I've never had this happen before. I take my helmet off, cut the bike. Nick turns his bike off. This guy on his bike cuts his bike off and literally in a loud voice doesn't introduce himself and says, are those your trail cameras down here? And I'm just like, it took me literally 10 seconds to even respond. I was like trying to figure out what the hell is this guy doing? So I said, hello, my name is Dan Staten. What's your name? And he says, my name is Bob such and such. I was like, okay, Bob such and such. Uh, no, I don't have any trail cameras in here. Well, where are you guys going hunting? And I was like, that's another question like, I just didn't have an answer for him because it was like so painfully obvious. Bro, we're hunting from right here going down this one ridge. He was just like, okay, well, I just wanted to see where you guys were going. And I was just like, okay, Bob, well, you can go wherever you want, man. You're not going to get in our way. And I don't know if he liked that, but I was literally like trying to tell him in the nicest way possible. Dear 52-year-old, dude, you're not a threat to us. We're not like that. We want everyone to be successful. Hunt wherever the hell you want. Um, so he took off and I was just, the more I thought about it, I thought that was psychotic. He was actually the same guy in the truck. So he drove fast enough to pull a guy over on a rocon, ask him where he's going. And then he pulled his truck over, unloaded his dirt bike, grabbed his gear, hauled ass after us, caught up to us at the top of the mountain, which I didn't know was on my ass going down that mountain for at least a mile, and I thought it was Nick. It wasn't Nick. It was him, and I didn't know. I have a helmet on. It's dark. There's brush over the trail. I'm trying to not have my bow get hung up, and then this guy, I guess, passed Nick on a trail where there's no room to pass, got his bow hung up in a tree, had to stop, so Nick passed him again, and that's how he pulled up on us. That's psychotic. Like, he passed, he passed so many different ridges he could have hunted. He was so concerned about what we're doing. So what's the lesson here? Number one, if you're hunting public land and somebody else is out in front of you, let them have it. Or just don't worry about what they're doing, do you. Number two, don't pass people on single track that's like dangerous and you're going to get your bow hung up. And um, that was the lesson of the day was like don't worry about what other people are doing. And um, I just thought that was – psychotic so bob from post falls if you're listening man you need to rethink that that day the 21st was magical we heard 100 plus bugles we got in tight on the first herd bull i've been trying to kill a couple of days in a row 36 yards got busted by his cows in like one of the only openings uh, nice little 280 heavy six point bull we went past him and we worked a bigger herd bull and we got uh We got him really fired up, and how we got him fired up was not by bugling. We just quit bugling, and when he was within about 100 yards or so, we just started raking, and he went crazy, and he got closer and closer, and finally he's in a standoff position about 50 yards. Obviously we're in the brush, and that's a no shot. Can't even see him at 50, and he starts backing off, and I grabbed Nick, and I was like, I think I know where he wants to go. So we just beat feet. Down to the creek bottom, went up the creek three fingers and got to where he crosses usually. And sure enough, we were there, he was there, and he lets out this awesome bugle and comes up over the top. And we're standing kind of in the trail, which is too bad because it should have been off the trail. And he freezes at 30 yards. And I'm actually kind of behind a tree, so I can pull my bow back without detection. So I pull back. And I peek behind out from the tree, and he's staring a hole through me. And it's only going to be a thirty-yard frontal, and y'all know I don't love frontals. And by the time I decided to to try to wheel on him and see if I could get him to go broadside, he took off running. So he saw something he didn't like. Two guys makes more noise than one, and uh, man, got a really good look at this bull. It's one of the better bulls I've ever seen in Idaho, and. I hunted him last year and the year before, so he's got a good thing going. A couple of cool things about this bull is number one, it took me a while to figure this out, but he does not hang out with the cows. He does not bed with the cows. He literally kind of hangs out in this transition area where most cows, no matter where they all bed, will come through his transition zone on their way to feeding. And he literally just, I think he just picks off hot cows from there. Um, if you are working any other bull and you hear him bugling, moving in, that's not good because generally the bull you're trying to work will shut up and hook his cows and run from this bull. So this bull's just kind of a pain in the ass, but he's by far the biggest bull in the drainage and he is, uh, something else. He just doesn't run with cows. He's so cool. Anyways, um, what else happened that day? Oh, and, um, after that transaction, the brush was pretty wet, so we needed to kind of get a fire, and this was the one day that water had actually got through my my rain gear, my storm front, sick of pants. They got through that. I was wearing gaiters underneath that, Kinetrek gaiters, got through that, got into my socks, and my boots were soaked. That was the one day out of all the rainy days where I actually got boots soaked. So we started a fire, dried out our socks, dried out our boots, dried out our gaiters, um, had a casualty with a hat trying to dry it out, lost the elk shaped hat to fire. It melted. But when we had that fire going, two hunters popped down on us and they were young kids. And I didn't tell you guys this, but the day before I was in the same drainage and I rode in, in the, in the dark, the trail was fine. And then I was riding out in the dark pretty late. I like to hunt till dark, dark in the mountains and then just get home late, deal with it later. And and I was coming out and I had about a quarter mile left a single track to get through, going downhill and I could tell somebody had literally taken their time and grabbed every available stone boulder and rock and put it in the trail to where the trail like I couldn't go go down the trail I had to like literally shut my bike off take my pack off and walk a quarter mile of moving debris and rocks and stones out of the trail so I could at least just get back to my truck get back to base camp to hunt the next day and I I just thought I was curious that these kids were so deep into this basin. I was like, "What's up, bro? Um, hey, is is are those your trail cameras on this ridge?" And he's like, "Yeah, those are mine." I was like, "Okay." I was like, "Hey, you left uh, a bag of salt, like your garbage, near your camera." And I grabbed your bag and put it, I put it next to your camera. Would you make sure to take that and leave, leave that, get that trash out of here? And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry." He's like, I stashed that and squirrels got into it. I'm like, okay, whatever. That's cool. Uh, I don't even care that he was salting. Um, that's You're never going to kill an elk in Idaho over salt in my opinion. But that's besides the point. He, I asked him then. I was like, well, do you know who's responsible for putting the boulders in the single track trail that almost killed me? I almost did a header off my dirt bike going down. He's like, oh, yeah, that was us. And I was like so shocked that he admitted it face-to-face. I was like, listen, and this is where I sound old, but I'm 38, he's 19, I'm twice his age. I was like, bro, that's a good way to get punched in the throat. It's like, if you were a little bit older, I'd probably just punch you right now. Like, you're going to kill somebody or get them hurt really bad over elk hunting. Why are you putting these rocks and stones in the trail? And he's like, well, man, last couple of days, We've been hiking in and these dirt bike guys just ride right past us with, you know, no concern about what our plans are. And I was like, hey, they're doing nothing wrong. If you need to wake up earlier, wake up earlier. If you need to lo- mow a few more lawns and buy a little four stroke dirt bike, do that. They're not doing anything wrong. It's like, well, it's just, it's not fair. And I was like, man, I just like, took a deep breath. I was like, bro, how many elk have you killed? with a bow he's like i've never killed an oak i was like okay man take it from me i've killed a few i've had some success even where we're standing i've had some good success in here i'm like i always take a dirt bike in here and i always coast on the way down so don't worry these dirt bikes don't scare and if you need to beat the dirt bike guys then you just throw a tent in your pack throw a bivy." Camp out here, camp on a ridge or leave the trailhead earlier, but don't sabotage other people's hunt because you're jealous or you're insecure, or you've convinced yourself that that's going to prevent them from using the same public land access. So good learning lesson for the 19 year old lad and his friend, Bob, all this happened on the same day. And then towards the end of the day, we were almost back to the dirt bike and a bull literally starts bugling a hundred yards from my dirt bike. I got in on him real tight and I made the mistake of basically just sounding too too big and I had him at 30, couldn't get a shot. He was a nice big five by five. I would have shot a very mature five by five, great throaty bugle and my last bugle was just too aggressive and he got scurred and he peaced out. So three bull day, really good. That was the 21st and then from the 22nd to the 28th, I bet it rained most of the time I had one more decent day on the 24th. We I convinced Nick to get a, to backpack in there and sleep in a tent. We did 11 or 12 miles the day before and when we woke up that morning, um Nick had just overdone it, man. Like he had been with me for 3 days. We'd probably done 30 plus miles. I think I just <clears throat> in that country that's just too much. We didn't take any naps. We just hunted hard. Had a lot of great action. He got the images he needed. He was ready to go home. And so I didn't shame him. I was like, man, that's cool. I'm going to go hunt right now. You can, when I get back and, you know, I'll meet you at the cabin. And, uh, so I hunted the rest of the day. And when I got back to the cabin that evening, Nick had gone home um, he needed to get back to his family and he was pretty worn out. His knees were hurting. So it was a pleasure to get to know him. I hope we get to bring, I, I would hunt with him again. He really wasn't a hindrance. He kept up the whole three days he was with me. He kept up really well. I know he was hurting for certain. And he said, he'll, you know, he said he'd like to, to really be in way better shape for next time we go and so he's got some motivation and i hope he kicks butt but his name's nick higman photography look him up guys world class um i spent the last few days hunting in full-on rain gear through rainstorms i got in on a couple more bulls but i was really just trying to kill this one big 350 bull i had him at 42 yards i range found his rack i could just see his rack in his neck couldn't get a shot on him And he's just not the kind of bull that's going to stand around there that long and wait for you. So it's really tough to get shots on these elk in this brush country. Even if you, like, call them in, you could just sit there and not get a shot. And I'm used to that. But by the 27th, 28th, I pretty much wrapped it up because it was 100% chance of rain for the next three days. And then it was turning into snow. And the Monday, the 30th, was the last day of the season, which I would have been out there. But I had committed to watching my kids so my wife could work and so I ran out of time that was my uh that was my Idaho deal so let's recap Idaho we had shouldn't have passed on on some of those bulls early on probably shouldn't have passed thought it was you know it happened so quick and so early I just thought that it would get better and better but actually feeling like it kind of got worse and worse as the elk hunting pressure was never been higher a lot of my places that I like to hunt um including some new areas. The access was just too much. The gates were open. Uh, guys had come in there in the off season in the summer and cleared out trails that had never been cleared before. And uh, some of the elk were in their usual haunts because of some lo- high country logging operations that were literally seemed like they're running literally 24 hours a day between logging trucks, loaders, and saws, and sawyers, and high lines. And just a lot of human traffic in places that don't see it. Uh the full moon was in the smack dab middle of the month, and then ninety percent rainy days. Only I bet ten percent of my time was actual dry conditions. I'm used to hunting when it's actually pretty hot there, and you wish it would rain because it's so hot and dusty, but it just wasn't like that this year. Very unusual year with the elk tags all selling out before the season started. That's unprecedented. So Looking back, how am I going to hunt Idaho differently? couple things. Number one, Idaho, where I hunt in the panhandle, is my last choice. Like I need to do a better job of trying to get better tags. Uh, I need to start putting in from Montana General just because of the freedom of the six weeks. And there's a lot of places where you can get away from people. Even though Montana has never been more popular than it is today, I still have some spots where I know I can get away from people. Uh, Wyoming General is still a really good place to go. You know Utah. I'm probably not going to hunt Utah until I draw a limited entry, and it looks like that could be another ten, fifteen years. Uh, New Mexico draw odds wise. I got to stop putting in for some of the premier units and start putting in for some of their crappier units because their crappier units are probably better than some of my best over the counter units. Um, I probably need to scout a little bit more. My home state, Washington. Guys like Ryan Lampers, my buddy. When he lived here, he got it done. I think I need to start actually hunting my home state and kill a $40 elk. That would be cool. I can't put him to Nevada for another six years. Uh, I sure as hell can't afford landowner tags. And so I just need to potentially do more scouting and find new areas, new ground. And I'm probably going to do more bivvy hunting and less base camp hunting. Um, And this year, you know... A lot of my best days were because I slept in a tent in the middle of the backcountry and was able to hunt from dark to dark. Huge advantage. Um, so I was just a little too picky this year. And um, the elk were really quiet with the rain. Uh, wolf pressure was pretty legit this year. Got quite a few wolves on camera. Heard them howling a few times. Saw some fresh sign. But I never did see a wolf with my own two eyes in the fall. And, um, yeah, it's just hard. It's just elk hunting hard, especially over-the-counter public land. So that's my season, guys. I want to end this with kind of talking about something that I'm going to have to tread lightly, It'd be delicate, and I wish I could just go filter list, but I'm going to try to be articulate. Elk hunting, public land, over-the-counter stuff is the most challenging and rewarding type of elk hunting there is, period. If you added up Uh, A year's worth of mortgages right here, mortgage payments on the house I'm in right now, I still would not be able to afford to hunt some of these premier ranches. Not high-fence ranches, but just ranches where it's $20,000 to start hunting there. You have to have a guide. You need to tip that guide. 10% is the industry standard. So there's $2,000 going to your guide. You have a cook. They're going to cook all your meals. You need to tip them probably 5%. That's 1000 bucks. So we're at $23,000. The bull to cow ratio, unlike where I hunt, where it's maybe 10 bulls for every 100 cows. Maybe, maybe. There's 80 bulls for every 100 cows. There's a lot of competition. Uh, there's a limited amount of hunters. There's a six point around every tree. Not really, but there's a lot of six points. You and I aren't going to be able to afford that hunt. And if you kill a bull that's 350, you're going to have a trophy fee and it's by the inch. If you go over 360, that fee's going to go up. If you kill one over 370, it's going to go up and it, sh- it seriously could be a $30,000 elk hunt. Maybe that's something that you want to do. I don't know. That's up to you. It's definitely a place where a new I someone just brand new to archery, never elk hunt in their life, could literally go for seven days and probably get a shot at a six point bull that's bigger than anything I've ever killed. You want to talk about delayed gratification? You want to talk about doing the hard thing? You want to talk about choosing the high road? You want to talk about working your butt off for just one shot opportunity on any bull or any legal elk? That's gratifying. That is that is delayed gratification. That is literally the most rewarding, and that's the style of hunting that I'm going to promote. I want to celebrate the punch tag on any legal elk. I don't give a crap what it scores unless you want to tell me how many pounds of meat is in your freezer. And I just want you guys to be encouraged by listening to me say, like, without saying names, without pointing fingers, there's enough people against us hunters. To the point where I can't go out here and just shame people because of their influence or means that they get to go they have a TV show they get to go kill the most biggest bulls and debate whether or not I think they could even kill a elk in a normal public land over the counter unit. It's a waste of energy and time, but what you guys can do is narrow your focus. You know I'm done following people that do the style of hunting that I can't relate to. I don't want to be jealous. That's not good. What is good is focusing on everybody who is cut from the same cloth as me that is just here to work hard, take advantage of the opportunities that you can afford and to squander zero time in the field and work really hard at at your craft year round from staying fit getting fiscally fit, not so you can hunt premier ranches, but so you can afford the opportunities that you can. And, you know, maybe you'll reward yourself with some really good gear. But if you're like me, you got kids, to colleges to think about. You got, you know, trying to be fiscally fit for me means trying to pay off the this mortgage, you know, I was talking about. I don't want to have a mortgage in two years and we're on track to do it. And I'm going to tell you when we do it, how we did it exactly but i'm on a warpath for that and i'm focused year round on shooting and becoming better and better at archery because if you're not getting better you ain't staying the same you're probably getting worse i want my fitness to be unlimited i felt unlimited this year i felt like i felt like my fitness was so good this year that i i didn't need to ever stop and i felt like i pushed it every day and i never felt limited on well what if i kill an elk here how am i going to get it out like yeah, it's going to suck, but it's doable. Or man, I've already gone over three ridges. I don't want to go chase that bugle, but I'm going to, like, I want fitness to be an ally, an asset in the mountains. And it was, and I want you to have the same. I don't want you to, like, if you were to hunt with me, like Nick did, like Nick Scott, to, Nick Higman is a really good woodsman and a great guy to be around. And I need him in better shape if he ever hunts with me again, because what we did in those three days, that's every day that I have dedicated to elk hunting, I'm going to do that, I'm going to try that hard. And he needs to be in a position to try that hard too. So you got to be able to recover fast. And really, between the ears, you got to be able to just enjoy that suck fest. And lastly, I want it to be a suck fest. I want it to be a nasty, dirty little public land DIY. I want lots of competition. I want it to be difficult so that it's so freaking badass when you finally get it done. I don't want it to be easy. I don't want a softball lob. And honestly, I don't think for me where I'm at in my life, a twenty or thirty thousand dollar elk hunt that is just beyond my means. And it's all relative to, to, to where you're at on that. And even if I did have the means, I don't think it's what I I don't think it's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a test. I'm looking for a really good test. And uh, I'm looking to fill my freezer. And if you can relate to me, man, I hope you hear this and know that I'm not hating. I'm just encouraging people to, to maybe just narrow their focus on who they follow on social media. Narrow your focus on anybody negative in your life. You just weed them out. Keep a small circle of like-minded, blue-collar people that are have the same values as you, and that want to work hard and want the high road. They want to go against the grain, and they don't want it to come easy. That's awesome. Like if you're, if you're, if you're hunting somewhere where you literally get out of the side by side, and you don't even need a backpack. I I don't know what kind of, and you're dodging 300 inch bulls, trying to get to the 350 plus bulls. Like I don't know anything about it. I'm sure it's awesome. But it's not that's not what I know. I know I'm looking for a really awesome bull to bugle and to rake and to scream and to glunk and to wanna to fight. And if he's got two hundred and sixty inches of bone on his head, so be it. If he's a you know, whatever, it's gonna be awesome. And that's so that's that's all I have to say. It took me a while to kinda of get this podcast because I knew I could get myself in hot water if i just sat here and talked a bunch of shit but hunters are more likely to fight amongst each other than we are to fight with anti-hunting and i don't want to promote that i want hunters to stick together but i also want people to understand what's really out there what's really realistic because when i was a young guy watching hunting videos i didn't know i was watching Primos videos i didn't know they were at the hill ranch in colorado with similar prices that i mentioned previously i didn't know i thought that's what elk hunting was and so some of you are out there on instagram or facebook and you're seeing some guys knock down some really big bulls and you're like man why is not my elk hunting experience like that because no one's really out there showing you what it's really like and um, so any elk with a bow should be celebrated all hunters should stick together and you should narrow your focus on who you follow and what influence is influencing you. And uh, that's all I got to say. I am got my teeth kicked in in Idaho this year. I appreciate it. It's uh, It's definitely some humility that I deserve. And it makes me so fired up to map out a better hunt plan for next year. Show up in as good a shape, if not better. Be able to shoot my bow better than I did this year. I need to do more scouting. I need to find more areas and I need to go deeper. I need to find areas where people don't want to go and animals are going to go because they get pressure. Elk hunting's cool now. So if you want success as bad as I do, be prepared to work harder than others. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Catch you on the next one.
1: Hey, elk hunters. Corey Jacobson here from elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic. From planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between, the University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today.
2: All right, guys, that is a wrap. Sorry to talk for an hour straight on my elk hunting season. Hopefully you learned from some of my mistakes. I'm always trying to get better, and I'm sure you're doing the same. Speaking of getting better, i got to just end this with talking about Oak Shaped Camps 2020. The first one's going to be January 24th through the 27th in Spokane, Washington. Go ahead and get registered. The link is in the show notes. It's on my website. We are going to get the links live for all the other camps soon. Here's what we got penciled in in February. We're headed over to Sisters, Oregon. That's by Redmond, uh, kind of that central Oregon area, I believe, and Looking forward to getting that one done. Got a gym lined out. Got an archery shop lined out. Going to be able to cover everything that we do. Subject matter experts are to be determined, but I'm in contact with uh, the bugler, Dirk Durham. He's he's mentioned multiple times he's down for all these camps. I just have to double check. Lampers is down, and I'm working with Joel Turner to come to a couple of my camps this year as well. He's competed at outcalling. He's really good at teaching and tactics as well as obviously the Shot IQ stuff, which is a lot of stuff we do, talking about working through a controlled shot and that whole process, as well as tuning and then all the nutrition, fitness, and mental toughness that uh, we're going to cram down your throat. March, we're coming to Texas. We're looking at going to two locations. We're looking at the 6th through the 8th. That's going to be at Cinnamon Creek Ranch. And then we're going six hours north for the following weekend. I can't remember the town, but Leading Edge Archery is the shop. We got a gym picked out April. We got two as well. We're looking to go into Wisconsin, and we're going to do that at Vortex HQs. That's penciled in, working on the details there. I can't wait to meet Wisconsin people. They are hardcore, and I know you guys got your turkey season on April 15th. Trust me, I get it. We are going to get that elk camp knocked out before, and you'll have plenty of time to scout for your little turkeys, and no. Turkey hunting is not like elk hunting, and I'll show you how and why. And then we got the end of April, we're going to No Limits Archery in Colorado with Phil Mendoza. He's got the Alpha Challenge. That guy, yeah, he's going to be helping out with the camp. And then we're going to do one more in Vancouver, Washington, near Portland, Oregon. And that one's going to be at CrossFit, Fort Vancouver. Adam Nefer's the owner. He's competed at CrossFit Games multiple times. He's won the Affiliate Cup. And then we have an Archery Shop picked out as well. One of my buddies has helped me line that out. And that's it. Now we had Utah, but I just I wanted to cap it at this many. And I do want to get further east and in the Midwest, but that's what I got for this year. Those aren't completely set in stone, but they're pretty much gonna go down that way. So if I get a chance to meet you, I can't wait. I've had double-digit guys email me pictures with stories of their first bulls and they credit a lot of their confidence and ability to get it done from all the stuff they learned at Elk Shape Camp. And there's a whole host of guys that have got awesome before and after pictures just from getting their life together and becoming the best possible version through Elk Shape and Elk Camp and leveraging elk hunting in the name of better self-development. So I love that. I appreciate you guys. You have a lot of options when you listen to podcasts. This one's a little different. I appreciate your time. If you want to do me a solid, tell a good buddy about this podcast. Keep grinding towards your goals. We'll catch you on the next one.